As we come now before the very Word of God, if you'd like to read with me, we'll be in Genesis chapter 2. We'll read uh, the last bit here of this chapter. This will sound familiar if you were here last week, although uh, we'll take a different approach at it this week. Uh, This is Genesis in chapter 2, but before we read, would you please uh, pray with me? Uh, Lord, uh, we know that the prophet uh, Jeremiah said that when your words came, he ate them, and they became a joy to him and the delight of his heart, and we want that to be true of us as well. We know that your words have, have come. You've given us these things by your grace. Help us now to hunger for them, to be eager to hear them, and to receive the food of your word as you give it. Guide us now in this by your Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This is Genesis in chapter 2. I want to pick up here in verse uh, 21, and we'll read through the end of the chapter. So Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and were not ashamed. This is the word of God. Now, chapter 2 here gives us the final words in the whole creation narrative. We see in this text God's final creation. The one whom he has earlier called man's helper, what we now see is the woman. And last week we looked at this text particularly for its implications on gender, being created male and female. If you missed that or you're interested in it, you can go back and listen to that. But this week we want to look more specifically on this and its implications, not just for gender, but for marriage. And uh, before we can go there, I want to note then that, uh, that Adam and Eve, this whole account of Adam and Eve in the garden, is not just a, a Bible story. I suppose it's fine to call these things stories. I grew up hearing all the Bible stories. I refer to these things now as, as an account or a narrative. That's just my preference. You know, it's, it's fine to do those things. A story doesn't necessarily imply that something is fiction or not true. You know, if somebody's going to tell you their life story, for example, you don't think they're making it up. You receive it as something that's true, something that's happened. And, and the Bible presents this story, I suppose, of Adam and Eve in the same way, that these are real people in a real time and real history. But we need to be clear that this is more than just an isolated story. That we take the characters, we open the book, we look at the characters, see what happens, and then we close the book back up. 
the author here, Moses and the Lord God himself, the author intends to record this as a true account that affects us and the way that we live. We can even hear it woven in here, specifically at the end in the closing remarks. If you look at verse 24, we hear this. Therefore, which anytime we hear that in the Bible, that should make our ears prick up. The author's going to give some sort of conclusion based on everything that's said. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. We know then, at least from just that, that this is not just a story about Adam and Eve. They are, they're special creations of God. They do not have a father and mother to leave. So this is talking now to the listener, to all of us here, and there's, there's an implication for this whole account for all mankind, specifically as it relates to marriage. So in the rest of our time, we're going to address four big questions about marriage, which are these. What is it? When is it? Who does it? And why? What, who, what, when, who, and why. One thing that's missing from those, you may notice, is the how. Usually when you hear sermons or books about marriage, usually that's the focus. How do we marriage? Ten steps to a better marriage. And there's certainly a place for those. The Bible shapes us in how to do marriage. It certainly does. But that's not what this text is about. We're going to try to launch off of these things to see where it takes us. So, Let's go right in with the questions we have. The first is, what? What is marriage? The key phrase in this text are the words, one flesh. It's the most important part of this, that there is a unique kind of union that's happening here in one flesh. So just briefly to answer the question of what is marriage, at its heart, marriage is this. Marriage is a one flesh union where a man and a woman are joined together in covenant by God. A one flesh union where a man and a woman are joined together in covenant by God. We know Jesus, Jesus never married, never had a wife. He is still qualified to speak to marriage. He is God after all. And Jesus has a very high view of the marriage covenant. So at one point, we see this uh, recorded a few places in Scripture. I'll look at a piece in Matthew chapter 19. At one point, the Pharisees are pushing on him, as they tended to do, these religious leaders, and challenging Jesus specifically on marriage and divorce and the law. And so Jesus responds to them kind of extensively by acknowledging that there is a time and place for divorce. He says that. You know, that when the marriage covenant is broken... And the only time he mentions there is through, by way of sexual unfaithfulness. But when the marriage covenant is broken, that's when a, a divorce is warranted. And, and anyone who has experienced that at all, either through your own uh, divorce or be part of a family divorce, you know that that is often messy and, and hard. And so Jesus says to these Pharisees, hey, divorce was not God's intent for marriage from the beginning. 
And as he's responding to them, he quotes from part of Genesis. I'll read here in Matthew 19, beginning in verse 4. Jesus answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. You can hear in here more of what marriage is, this one flesh union where the two are joined in covenant by God. Not joined by each other, not joined by the preacher, not joined by the justice of the peace, not joined by nature even, joined in covenant by God. And that is something we do not see in any other human relationship. The union of marriage is deeper even than our union with our neighbors, our union with our friends, our union with our kids, our union with our parents. That's not to demean any of those or say that they're unimportant. Those are all good, very valuable things. They're just different. You know, the scripture, the scripture calls us to honor our father and mother, right? It's in the Ten Commandments. Honor your father and mother. And that, that's true over the course of our whole lives, not just when you're a little kid living at home. And at the same time, even though we still are to honor our father and mother, the scripture also calls in some circumstances for times to leave. That's what's said here in Genesis. A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. The covenant of marriage then involves both leaving and cleaving. It's handy that those rhyme. To leave and to cleave, or to separate from one and hold fast from another. That doesn't mean you have to move out of your parents' house, or that you can never move back in if you need to. You know, bye, see you at Christmas and maybe Easter and sometimes in between. You know, it's just that the husband and the wife are now the new basic unit of the family that takes, pre- pre- that takes precedence. Adam and Eve are literally of the same flesh and bone. She's taken from his side, from his rib. And that's not true of any other marriage that's unique to them. But this becomes symbolically the the case, the archetype of every marriage then, that, that a married couple are to be of one flesh and bone. Which means that in a marriage, you are not your own. That's true of all of us, by the way. Whether you're married or not, you are not your own. You belong to God who made you. And if you're a Christian, a believer in Jesus, you belong to Jesus who bought you with his blood. That's a good thing. It's a relief. It's a comfort to us that we don't belong to ourselves, that we belong to someone else. 
that's good for us, that sort of experience happens in a similar way in marriage, that even our bodies are not our own. We hear in 1 Corinthians that, that the husband has a sort of authority over his wife's body. And the same is also true the other way around, that a wife has a sort of authority over her husband's body in their one flesh union. Fun fact, before I move on, I think they're fun at least. Grammar things are fun to me. If they're not, then this is a, well, tragic fact. A fun fact, in the Hebrew Bible, which is what the Old Testament's written in, in the Hebrew, there is no generic, gender-neutral word at all for spouse. There's no word for spouse. You either have to say husband or wife. But there's also no root word for wife. Isn't that interesting? The word that we see in the English show up as wife is made from the root word woman with a possessive pronoun attached to the end of it. So the word for wife literally is his woman or my woman. It's the same uh, in the common word for husband is literally her man, my man. So you don't just talk about a wife, you talk about her wife, his wife, my wife, his, her husband, and so on. That they belong to the other. All they have, all they are, belongs to the other in this covenant union that's joined by God. That's what marriage is. Now, second question. When is it? By which I mean, when is it properly considered a marriage that's joined by God. You know, uh, Adam and Eve are, are in a bit of a unique situation here. Uh, he's been in a coma, uh, put out in anesthesia, I, I assume, as the Lord does a sort of surgery and pulling out a, a rib and making a woman, and he wakes up for it, and, 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 and they're the only two humans in the garden. And, and, and it's not as if they just look at each other and go, Well, not a whole lot of fish in the sea on this one. There's no, there's no tender or whatever version that is. I guess uh, you're, you're all I've got, so I guess you, you want to get hitched? You know, that's not the way it is. A lot of the things that we often associate with marriage are just not present here. There's, there's no flowers. There's no groomsmen. There's no say yes to the dress. In fact, they're naked, which would have made a, a fascinating uh, marriage ceremony, but uh, that's a... That's a thing for another time, I suppose. There's no exact formula in the scripture for, for a wedding. A, you know, the exact way a wedding as the beginning of marriage ought to go. So we might think of certain things. We might think of something like the wedding ceremony that could be appropriate. It happens even in the scripture. Jesus' first miracle of turning water into wine was at a wedding ceremony. But a certain type of ceremony isn't required in order to be married. Nor are the things that we often associate like rings. You know, we have rings often as a sign of the covenant union, but that's not strictly required either. Sometimes there's not something like that. Sometimes there are similar but different things. Uh, later in Genesis, when we see Isaac marry Rebecca, he gives to her not a ring for her finger, but bracelets for her arms and a ring for her nose. I would love to conduct a marriage ceremony like that. Take this ring, put it in her nose, and repeat after me. 
just personal bit. You know, sometimes even there's a legal component to marriage, which, you know, there's some, you know, a marriage license, and, and if there's legal restrictions like that, of course, we should follow them. But that, it's not really the government that makes a marriage. It's God who joins a, a marital union. So we don't want to be overly restrictive. There's room for cultural variations on these sort of things. But we don't want to be overly permissive on this either. If we're too willy-nilly about it, then marriage really doesn't mean anything. There are principles in the scripture, with Genesis here as the anchor, that give us a guide as to when a marriage is a marriage. Let me mention three that I think are most central. When is a marriage a marriage? It must be one clear. That is, the public should know that you're married. It should be clearly, openly evident that you are in this union of marriage. That doesn't mean you have to go around announcing it at every moment, although new couples often tend to do that. Uh, nor do you have to wear some sort of like, I'm with her t-shirt everywhere you go. It, it's it's that, that you are wedded publicly. That's why we say it's before God and these witnesses. It's not just something that happens off in a closet somewhere. It's not, a marriage is not just something that's assumed after a while. There's no sense of common law marriage in the Bible, nor is it just a, pri a private decision between the two of them. Oh, we see ourselves as basically married. No, it must be clear. It also needs to be in covenant, which I know is not a word we're used to using, but a covenant in the Bible is an agreed-upon binding oath. The oath is as serious as a legal contract, but it's usually got a much more relational component. This binding oath. And, and in that marriage, the two are pledging something to one another. They pledge exclusive fidelity and faithfulness to the other. And they make those pledges through vows. I promise such and such. The vows are the center of any wedding ceremony. Which means that couples that are cohabitating, it's a fancy word, couples that are, are living together but not married, couples like that have gotten things backward. They've entered into a sort of union before making the public vows that make their marriage. And that, just to be frank, is sin. It's sin that ought to be taken seriously before God. You know, it's common for people to think that you're, you should live together before you marry. You've got to try the person out. Try before you buy. That's not the way the scripture speaks about it. In fact, something like that, where it's not it's absolutely detrimental, it can be really harmful to a marriage. Because if they're living together without that foundation of covenant, they don't have the things underneath needed to uphold it. It needs to be clear, it needs to be covenant, and third thing that makes a marriage is when it's consummated. You know what we mean by this, when the union is somehow sealed. And that union specifically is often sealed through that sexual union that God has designed a good, proper place for sex as a joyful, vital part of life, and that sex is only to be in the context that comes in the covenant union of one flesh. 
But that's not the only way a marriage is consummated. It's consummated by much broader, just bringing all of their lives together into one. They don't have two homes, they have one. They don't have two sets of finances, they have one. It's not my possessions and your possessions, it's, it's one. It's not mine and yours, it's ours. So a marriage happens when two are in clear covenant consummation in marriage. And before I move on to the next question for us, let me mention one component that seems to be noticeably absent there. What makes a marriage clear covenant consummation, the thing that seems to be absent is, well, love. Right? Love. Isn't love what makes a marriage? That's what all of the movies tell me. And we are certainly called to and want, should want, should desire love in our marriage. Love is a gift of God that makes a marriage alive, vibrant, joyful. We, we ask God to grow us in the grace of that daily. But, but it's noteworthy that in the Bible, love is not a prerequisite to marriage. Nor does love define or determine a marriage. We know it's a sad reality that too many people, sometimes even Christians, live in loveless marriages. And that can be heartbreaking, soul-crushing, gut-wrenching. As hard as that is, we know that even without love, it is still a marriage. And some people would say, you know, if you don't love the person anymore, then you shouldn't be married. No, 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 no. That is not true. A lack of love is not valid grounds for divorce. You are married. You are still bound by the covenant vows that you made. So this is not to put burden upon you. I'm not saying here, oh, just grin and bear it. Pretend like it's fine. That's not what I mean. But we also don't want to just cut and run either. The response there is to put the work and sweat in to learn to love in the midst of that loveless marriage at least as far as it's your concern, to, to learn to look to Jesus by his grace and power to lay my life down daily, to humble myself and to seek the good of the other. That's when we see a marriage. We're halfway through. Third question. Who? Who gets married? Who should be married? Uh, I, I, I hesitated to enter into this one because I don't want it to seem like I'm some sort of like holy matchmaker, uh, sing some sort of matchmaker, matchmaker, make me a match, you know, somehow I can pray and God will tell me who's supposed to be married to who. That's not my business. Uh, I, I can't say who is for who with any sort of blanket statement or any sort of certainty, but what I can say that not every person is called to marry or to remarry. There are some people 
like Jesus and the Apostle Paul, who are called to singleness for all or part of their lives. And that can come with some unique challenges. Unmarried people often are prone to loneliness, sometimes a feeling left out. It also comes with unique blessings. There's a special kind of added freedom to serve others that single people have. At any rate, if a person is to marry, the scripture does put a few parameters on who they may marry. I'll give just a few of those parameters. First, there's only to be two people. Jesus is clear about this. The scripture is clear about this. The one flesh is made from two, not from three, not from four, not from 20. Now, I I know we see in the Bible, especially the Old Testament, occasions of polygamy, where there's multiple wives. That happens in the Bible. Abraham had three wives. King David had at least eight wives. King Solomon had 700, which is just mind-boggling to me. But, But just because something occurs in the Bible, just because it happens, does not mean that God approves of it. God doesn't approve of marriages of more than two people. Polygamous arrangements almost always in the scripture result in a big mess. And it's never condoned or commanded or celebrated by God. It might take a village to raise a family, but that whole village isn't actually part of the marriage. The marriage is just two people. But it's also not just any two people. It's a male and a female, a man and a woman, And that's the consistent view throughout the whole of the Bible. I mean, you can hear, you might hear some people say cultural things that pop up every so often. Well, Jesus doesn't care about same-sex relationships because he doesn't say anything about it. That isn't true. He doesn't explicitly refer to it, but but Jesus consistently affirms, upholds, fulfills the entire law of God, including in the Old Testament that explicitly forbids sexual unions between male and male or female and female. And I know that that is a, a hot topic, controversial issue for a lot of people, but I have to tell you what the Bible says. I want to tell you what the Bible says. It's not as if Jesus and the Bible are being bigoted or homophobic or that they're trying to oppress LGBTQ people. We want these people to know they're cared for. And there's a place for LGBTQ people of some sort, even in the church. Meaning, you know, all Christians continue throughout our lives, myself included, to wrestle with various sins, various temptations that we are pushing against by God's grace. We put faith in Jesus. He's the one that cleanses us, but we, and in his grace, he keeps us submitting our lives to God so that we'll be shaped in holiness. And that is not easy. In matters of same-sex relationships, we need a lot of compassion and grace, but also clarity God is the maker of marriage. He's the one who sets the limits. He's the one who knows and says what is good. And there is good reason why he limits a marriage to just a male and a female, which I'll mention later. 
the last parameter that he puts, not just two people, not just a male and a female, the last big one is that the two are to be of the same faith. That there's not to be a marriage between someone who's a believer in Jesus and someone who's not. Maybe you've heard the term unequally yoked. That's often what this is referring to. And there can be some really challenging circumstances around this. You know, sometimes there's a change in faith after a couple has already gotten married. So they, they get married and perhaps one of them becomes a believer. And praise God for that. But the other's not. Or, you know, they come, they're, they're part of the church, but later in the marriage, one decides that they don't believe, that they've never believed. And Lord have mercy if that happens. But either way, the scripture is clear that neither of those circumstances are grounds for divorce, that the couple should still remain married, even though in that sense they are unequally yoked. But if a cup, two people are not married, Paul says, you are free to marry whomever you wish, but only in the Lord, he says. In other words, a believer is only to marry another believer who is in Jesus. The reason for that is because a marriage is a union in one flesh, which is not just a union of our body, it's not just a union of our property, it's a union of our persons, of our whole life and purpose. That we are yoked together in marriage. And if two oxen are yoked, they need to be pulling generally in the same direction. So if your whole life as a Christian revolves around the worship of God, the love of Jesus, the guidance of the Holy Spirit, that needs to be true of your marriage partner too. You know, if it's not true, the yoke, then, that you share across your necks will cause you strain and suffering and stumble. You know, I've heard, I've heard all the buts from dating couples before, where there's a sense that one believes and the other one doesn't. Oh, but we have so much else in common. Oh, but I know I can change him. But she's so close to loving Jesus. And maybe that's true. We pray to God that that would happen by God's grace, that someone would come to believe. But at the same time, let's not fool ourselves. We don't ever want to manipulate or coerce someone into professing faith, especially if their heart's not in it. You know, if both are not believers... It's not just my opinion, it's the word of God that they should not marry. So a marriage is made of two people, male and female, who are of the same faith. Now we come to our fourth and final question. We're almost there. Why? Why does marriage even exist? You know, God's God, He can do what He wants. We're in the creation here, the beginning of Genesis. God could have established humanity, families, any way he wanted. He's done it with other animals and other different ways. Humans, why this way? This passage in Genesis is quoted directly four times in the New Testament. 
Once in Matthew, once in Mark, once in 1 Corinthians, and once in Ephesians. And the Ephesian passage gives us the most help about why it is this way. There's an extended discussion about this, and I won't read it all just for the sake of time. But this is in Ephesians chapter 5. You'll hear the quote from Genesis. Uh, let me pick up in verse 31. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Did you hear what he said here? He calls marriage a mystery. And by this, he doesn't mean that it's impossible to understand, although it might seem that way sometimes. A mystery is something that requires revealing. If you read a mystery novel, at the end, you shouldn't be left in the dark about who did it. If you did, that's a bad mystery novel. The point is that there's a big reveal at the end that illuminates the story. So the revelation of the mystery of marriage comes in Jesus. And this tells us something about God. The scriptures give us several purposes for marriage, that, that marriage is to shape us in holiness, it's to increase our happiness, it's to have children and fill the earth. But you might notice that in each of those purposes, those purposes mainly just affect the people who are married. It shapes my holiness, increases my happiness, and I, I have my children only if I'm married. But the, the mystery of marriage is about something much bigger that is true for all believers, whether you're married or not, whether you're single or married, widowed or divorced, old or young, whether your experience of marriage is one of joy or one of sorrow because of abuse or hurt or loss or sin, Whatever the case, the very existence of marriage is to give us a little window, a picture through which we can see Jesus and his church, to show us that God is not just the one who made us. God is not just fond of us. That God is in union with us in a way that is deeper than any other sort of human relationship. That we, the church, are the very bride of Jesus in a one flesh union with the very king of creation. The Lord made marriage, specifically then between a male and a female, because it's not just a union of total equals who are the same in every single way. There is a kind of difference between the male and the female, that God has appointed to the man a unique sort of authority over his wife. That's not so that he'll lord it over her, 
not so he can control her for his own benefit. It's so that he can serve her, sacrifice for her, give his life for her. And we know husbands fail at this on a regular basis, but Jesus never does. Never. Not for a day, not for a moment. Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of this mystery of marriage. He is the epitome of sacrifice and love as he holds fast to his bride. That's good news. That's good news. God created marriage as this beautiful gift for us to see him. We know in our space we see marriage as it's played out through the lens of the fall. That sin has now entangled marriage with all sorts of trouble. That throughout the pages of the Bible, some of the biggest mess and mayhem results from sins related to sex and marriage. Perhaps you know some of that mess, personally, have felt the effects of that sin, contribute to those sins. Maybe some of those sins come to your mind right now as I mention them. They plague your mind and your heart. We know the Lord calls us to repent of sin, by His Spirit to return to the path of holiness, So we're not making light of the atrocity of sin, but I don't want you to despair either. You know, because of this mystery that's revealed to us in Jesus, we now know that we are his beloved bride through faith. And he presents us to himself in splendor, holy, and without blemish. So rest in his faithfulness. Would you pray with me? Lord, would you continue to reveal the mystery of this marriage to us? By your grace and power, would you cause those who are married or who will be married to be faithful and true to their vow and covenant And Lord, for those who are not, help us to find joy in the midst of our vocations as well. Help us to see this picture of your union with us, that we would see you in all of your love and faithfulness and find peace in you. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.